I'd like to start us off this morning by asking you all a question, and it's a question that's uh, straight from today's passage. And that question is, who are you? Again, who are you? This is both an easy but not so easy question to answer right. Now, how do people tend to answer this question? Uh, I would say a common and safe way that people often answer this question is by their job or their career. Oh, who am I? I'm a pastor. Or I'm a doctor. Or I'm a school teacher. Now, people also commonly answer this question by way of their relationships, uh, often the familial or relational or romantic kind, which is why people will tell you, oh, I'm Janice's fiance, or I'm Brian's mom. So proud of Brian. Now, in the age of social media and online public profiles, uh, people also seem to want to announce who they are by their achievements, more and more so. Right up at the top of their Twitter profiles, you'll, you'll read things like New York Times best-selling author or world's number one competitive eater, Joey Chestnut, who made us so proud as a nation by dominating on the 4th of July at Nathan's hot dog eating contest. I hope he doesn't become a New York Times best-selling author anytime soon. Um, now, not only do people want to be known by their career or their relationships or their achievements, nowadays it's not unusual for people to, to want to be primarily identified by their political preferences or even their sexual preferences or even their preference of gender. And the list of these identity badges just goes on and on. And they go on and on, I'd say, because we're all actually together chasing after the same thing. Everyone, including you, me, we're all consciously or unconsciously pursuing uh, some life-giving, life-directing answer to this question. Who are you? And this is why the question's been haunting us ever since we were young and started to bother us a lot more as we entered into our teenage years. And then just as we thought we had the, the question figured out and settled, all of a sudden it comes raging back in our middle age, our old age, really any age. And this happens especially, especially during those times of life where life just doesn't go how we want it to go. It's actually what a midlife crisis is about, right? Uh, we think, hey, maybe if I change jobs or, or cars or houses or spouses, I can change who I am. I can save my life. I can be born again. Now here's a surprising reason, I think, why this question, who are you, continues to disturb us off and on throughout life. It's because the question, I believe, is there by design meaning it's God himself who is actually trying to confront us with this question, who are you? And he does so, believe it or not, out of his great love for us. I think this question actually uh, keeps ringing in our souls because by faith, God wants us to hear it like the incessant beep of a loving homing beacon by which God himself is calling us back to himself.
Because as we'll see today in uh, this passage from the Gospel of John, if you really want the true answer to that question, who are you? The real question we must confront is the question, who is Jesus? As we'll see, John the Baptist knows who he is on account of knowing who Jesus is. And actually, I want to quickly remind us of, uh, about something we learned last week, which was in verse 3. This is also why we can know who we are on account of knowing who Jesus is. Verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. And verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if Christ is indeed our maker and the definitive source of life and light for everyone, it follows then that only in Christ can we discover any true knowledge of who we truly are. And last week, uh, we also saw that uh, in that beginning prologue to this gospel, the surprising answer about who we truly are or can be, actually, on account of God making himself truly known to us. We learn that by faith, we can become none other than the very children of God. Look back with me at uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Verse 11. He, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You realize this is why no job or relationship, not even the most uh, wonderful of spouses or children or any glorious heralded achievement or any other identity that we might pursue from this creation is sufficient to satisfy us. None of that can truly tell us ultimately who we are. Because what we're after is truly to come alive as the very children of God and actually come to know life together as his beloved sons and daughters who have entered into eternal life simply on account of believing in Jesus' name. And today, uh, the Gospel of John wants to convince us of the reality of God making himself known in Jesus by presenting to us a reliable eyewitness and his testimony and this uh, witness is none other than John the Baptist himself. But I want to give a, a necessary warning before we dive into his testimony. And it's this. What John the Baptist has to tell us about who we are, we might have a hard time actually accepting. That's because John's testimony actually implies something about who we are. This naked truth that every one of us, on some level, will actually find repulsive. And that naked truth is this. Who we are is actually not about us. And that's going to be my first point for today. Who we are is actually not about us. So then let's have a look at the beginning of John the Baptist's testimony where he answers this question, who are you? And he answers with three denials or negative replies answering who he is, not and with every reply, you can see John moving that spotlight away from himself 
to someone else. So look with me at verse 19, where John begins to deny himself three times. All right, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Just pause there. So our passage begins with this uh, delegate of Jewish leaders that have been sent to smoke out the true identity of John the Baptist. So the question is, why do they even care? Why are they here? Well, the reason why is John the Baptist was kind of a big deal. Uh, and how big is, is often lost on us as modern readers. But to get some sense of how significant and famous John the Baptist actually was in his time, we need to understand that when John showed up, he literally made history. Israel had been waiting for someone like John to show up for literally hundreds of years. So when he did show up, John the Baptist was such a, a unique, influential figure that even kings, local magistrates came to know about him. And his ministry spurred rumors far and wide among the people that John's very presence was probably a sign that God was about to show up in some way that he hasn't for a long time among them. And this is why John is being questioned by these leaders as to whether he's the Christ um, or the Messiah himself, because many people actually thought this guy might be the one. So keep, in, keep that in mind as we read. Uh, uh, and, and just remember that John the Baptist was no average Joe. This man was a giant. In fact, Jesus himself had, had this to say about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, where he declared, from those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So, this is, uh, this is ultimately what made John great, and we're going to discover that. But uh, as we read, if you're one of those people that longs in any way for a sense of significance, I'd encourage you to pay close attention to these verses. Look again at, at chapter 1, verse 6, where we first hear about the true greatness of John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here's John's greatness or a spectacular mission in life, he existed to point people to Jesus. Meaning, who John was wasn't actually about John, right? And what a glorious truth that was. John understood that while he was not the light itself, he still had this glorious divine call to bear witness about the light, not only so that uh, Israel might believe, but so that all might come to believe, Jews and Gentiles. In one sense, John the Baptist functioned very much like a mirror. Mirror. Because a mirror is not the light itself, but it bears witness to the light, right? Now, if a mirror bears witness to the light, 
you and, you and I can actually behold something through it, right? So here's something else that's really interesting about John. Did you notice how the very first words of this gospel repeat the very first words of the book of Genesis? In the beginning? That's not by accident. That's a deliberate echo. And in Genesis, we're told about what? The creation of the world and of mankind. And for what purpose, what definition does God give to mankind? To be the bearers of his image. Right? Put another way, we've been put on this earth to reflect him, to bear witness to him in the world. But in Genesis, we also know that a great tragedy took place, a tragedy that we call sin, a a tragedy that still persists today in every human being, including you and me. And the substance of sin can be described in this way. We decided we'd rather not be about God. We decided we'd rather not bear witness to his glorious image but rather to our own glorious image. In other words, we embrace the lie that who we are is about us. And in so doing, we mirrors became corrupted. We became fractured. We became curved within ourselves, warped. And instead of faithfully reflecting the life and light of God to one another and to the world, we come to reflect just the opposite, darkness and death, which exists everywhere sinful humanity exists. But remember, the good news according to this gospel, we read it in verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Because what God in Christ has initiated in Jesus The true image bearer is his own magnificent global image restoration project. And John the Baptist happens to be the very first witness among many witnesses to come. This is also why I love the clarity of John's first answer to the question in verse 19. Who are you? Look at verse 20 again. He, John, confessed and did not deny but confessed. I am not the Christ. What a vital, liberating truth for every would-be witness of Jesus to accept, to believe, to understand. Because if John the Baptist, the greatest mere mortal to have ever lived, is not the Christ, what's also true is this. None of us are the Christ either. Which means this, uh, you cannot save your own life. And since you are not the Christ, neither are you expected to save anyone else's because you have no such capacity. Again, to be clear, you are not the ultimate source of life or light or salvation for yourself or for anyone else. And you're not expected to be. Which also means this, uh, that, that truly heavy burden Uh, of saving your own life and justifying your own existence is completely lifted from you. You can stop trying to justify your life by any and all these measures, your job, 
how much money you have, relationships, righteousness, your great achievements, etc., etc. All the things that we try to pin our life and our identity upon. None of us have to spend not another ounce of effort or worry trying to be our own savior king because that's what the Christ is. But that still leaves us with a uh, pretty sour predicament. And this other more important question, if John the Baptist is not the Christ and we are not the Christ, then who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? Who is, who is the one that is going to bring us this salvation that we all desperately need? Now, this brings us to our second point today, which is this. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Because after John answers that uh, he is not the Christ, and the delegate asks him whether he is Elijah or the prophet, because uh, these are two figures that uh, many believed in Israel would show up in anticipation of the Messiah. But again, John simply denies being either. So after John tells us who he is not, that is not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophet. He finally answers positively about who he is and what he's doing. And he gives that. He gives us a big clue by quoting none other than the prophet Isaiah. Look again with me at verse 22. Verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John reveals here that he's just the lowly announcer and not the main act, right? According to John, the divine purpose of his life is simply to cry out, get ready, he's about to show up, so that when the curtain is finally pulled back and the uh, true center of the universe is revealed, people can recognize who he is. After all, John is crying out in the wilderness to make way for who? Make straight the way of the Lord. The Lord, God himself is about to show up. And that's exactly what our first reading from Isaiah chapter 40 prophesied, didn't it? How the whole world was about to be unsettled and transformed as it was about to behold the arrival of God himself, who's going to show up in glorious splendor and strength, bringing judgment and salvation in his wake, all the while showing tender, loving, shepherd-like care for his people who have been suffering for so long on account of their own sin as well as the sin of others. But these leaders sent from the Pharisees, as it turns out, they're just not getting what John is putting down. So they asked John yet one more question. Verse 25, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Uh, so John explains in one sense that everything he's saying and doing, uh, especially this baptism, is simply part of his witness or his testimony, a symbol pointing to the real thing to come. 
the real thing that we all need, even more than cleansing water. John's baptism ritual itself doesn't actually change anything. But here's how John's baptism did function. For those being dipped, it was like a public prayer of repentance, meant to express a person's heartfelt desire and plea for God's mercy. Now, this is ultimately the only way that any of us can come to meet the Lord. We must come humbly before him, repentantly before him. And John's statement here about how he is not even worthy to untie even the sandals of this one to come is a much-needed reminder as well as rebuke to our our own often misguided pursuit and search for significance in this life. And that's because uh, in ancient villages uh, that lacked modern sewage and garbage treatments, uh, sandals were repulsively filthy, right? Covered in all manner of human and animal waste and feces. And the reality is before a holy God, we're not even fit for the lowliest of the lowest jobs in service to him. We can't even untie the strap of his sandal. What this means is that we cannot approach God with our typical self-exaltation and self-righteousness. We cannot come boasting of our self-seeking, our self-aggrandizement, really any tendency to take ourselves seriously at all. All of it uh, uh, melts like wax before the holy consuming fire that is the Lord who will burn away the chaff and actually reveal who we truly are in and of ourselves not worthy. And yet shockingly, shockingly, as we'll see later in John's gospel, Jesus is going to stoop down like the most lowly and despised of all servants, untie the straps of his disciples' filthy sandals and wash their unclean feet with his own hands. And this foot washing too was just a pointer, a symbol of the greater cleansing to come at the cross. And that brings us to John's climactic message for the world. Behold Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's look again at verse 29. Verse 29. The next day he, that is John, uh, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So uh, John's message to the people is simple. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And notice how the the scene started with uh, these words the next day. Again, like Genesis, John is going to show us more about who Jesus is and how he's actually remaking the world 
through the course of seven days. I want to encourage you to pay attention to that phrase. But what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? I think we hear it so many times we kind of have become dulled to it. It's the only uh, uh, title, or it's, it's, it's a title that's only ascribed to Jesus in the scriptures. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? It means this. He's a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Because he is no ordinary lamb. He is the very lamb of God. And every sacrifice in the scriptures up to this point have actually been foreshadowing and pointing to this sacrificial lamb. All the way from the lamb uh, that, that God promised Abraham would take the place of his son Isaac to the Passover lamb that allowed the angel of death to, to, to pass over and for the people of God to journey ultimately out of slavery. Jesus, the lamb of God, would be greater than all of these because only he can do this. To take away the sins of the world. And he does so by paying the full price for all time through his atoning death for all sin in our very place on the cross. Now, how is Jesus sufficient to take away the sins of the world? on account of who he is, actually. Verse 30, John gives us his clue. He tells us that Jesus was before me. Wait a second. We know from the other gospel accounts that John was born before Jesus. But Jesus adds to the confusion, because later on in the gospel, Jesus will almost be killed after he makes this bold claim that he existed even before Abraham. So what John is trying to reveal to us is that Jesus is the Lamb of God because he is the eternal, pre-existent Son of God who was in the beginning with God and was God and through whom the whole world was made. And now through him, the world would have its sins taken away. Now, this reality is also what makes sense of what Jesus will do for us as he takes our sins away which is this, he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Let's hear from John in verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here's the one that we must behold for true, abundant life. The Son of God who takes away our sins and baptizes us in his very own spirit. And here's something uh, important to understand about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Biblically speaking, it's ultimately not some ecstatic individual spiritual experience. Oftentimes speaking in tongues is equated with baptism of the Holy Spirit. But rather, the baptism of the Spirit is when the Spirit comes to dwell upon followers of Jesus in such a way that they come to actually participate 
enter into the very life of God himself, which means they're empowered by God now to serve as witnesses to his holy son. Here's how the risen Lord Jesus himself, uh, speaking to his disciples before his ascension, here's how he summed it up in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You can just listen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this brings us to our third and final point for today, which is who you are is a witness. Who you are is a witness. Remember how in chapter 1, verse 6, we were told about how God sent John the Baptist to serve as a witness? Well, uh, toward the end of this gospel, here's what Jesus tells his disciples about who they are. This is after his resurrection. He says in chapter 20, verse 21, let's just listen as I read. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Christians, here's the thing. While you may not be the Christ, you may not be Elijah, you may not be John the Baptist, but if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, you can consider yourself sent by him to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. We're not the light, but we have been sent into the world to bear witness to the light, to the true light who gives light to everyone. He has come into the world. Now, as a result of, of hearing this word, we've also had what was revealed to John the Baptist, revealed to us, which means we know what John the Baptist knows. And if such a revelation bound John the Baptist to be a voice crying out in the wilderness for the Lord's name, for his sake, what do you think it means for us living in this wilderness? It can only mean one thing, believers. Who you are, first and foremost, is a witness. And the reality is, you're going to behold and bear witness to something or someone. You are an image bearer. We can worship and reflect idols, or we can worship and reflect the true and living God. So, I want us to be clear on this. Uh, you're a witness. But here's the surprising thing at the heart of being a witness. You don't be a witness by trying really hard to be a witness <laughs> for being, uh, 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 I don't know, a well-performing witness. No, we bear witness by beholding. We bear witness by beholding. That is, as we experience true freedom as the children of God, by beholding the lamb who takes our sin away, you're going to be like that mirror, restored, reflecting him as the very face of God shines upon you. And as you behold the lamb, you will bear witness to him and his grace and truth. 
as his very spirit washes over you. And that really is, I would say, the Christian life in a nutshell. It's life in the spirit where we behold him. And as a result of beholding him, we bear witness to him. So the question for everyone here today, and this will determine who you are, what are you in the habit of beholding? Is it Christ the Son? Or do you come to a mirror and look primarily upon your own image? Or are you trying to find the answer in beholding other sinners? Putting your hope for a saved life in them. I'd equate this with something like a broken mirror reflecting back to another broken mirror, which means you're actually just reflecting nothing. It's nothing reflecting nothing. And it's often done in the context of darkness. It's without substance. It's void. But now we are all invited to behold the Lamb. And the good news is, for those who believe in his name, we're now free by his Spirit to reflect and be conformed to the true image of God and bear witness to his life and light in the world So let us hear this voice that's crying out in the wilderness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and let us live to bear witness as the living children of God to the Son of God who has fully immersed us into his very spirit, his eternal life. And this is also that our lives can join John the Baptist in declaring this, in bearing witness to this before the whole world. Verse 34, and I have seen, that is, I have beheld, and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen.